Anybody have anything they're dying to sing this morning? Well, that's too bad, because I do, but I want to talk about it first. There was a man by the name of Robert Robinson, who some of you may have heard of, but it wouldn't surprise me if none of you at all did. But you'll know something about him here in a couple minutes. He was born in the year 1740. At the age of 17, he was, well, I guess we could say he was a bit of a troublemaker. And um, one of the things that he and his friends used to like to do was to go to different church meetings and revival meetings that were going on at the time. This was in England, and it was a, uh, a very spiritual time in England. And this 17-year-old and his group of friends used to go and heckle preachers. And it was something that they used to do for fun, and I guess, you know, they had a good time at it, because they did it quite often, I've read. Well, there was a time when he was 17, when Robert Robertson and his friends were harassing an old woman. And this was a woman around town who had a reputation of, of knowing a little more than most people know. And people said that she uh, was a bit of a prophetess, or maybe a fortune teller would be a better word. Well, this fortune teller, as she was being harassed by Robert Robinson and his friends, said to Robert Robinson, that he was going to live a long life, and he was going to have lots of kids and lots of grandkids, so we better get his act together. And that doesn't sound like much of a threat to us now. Most of the time when we say, you're going to have a long life, we'd say, oh, well, that's good. But it kind of scared little Robert. And uh, he said, well, what am I doing with my life? I'm going around and making fun of people and harassing old ladies. So worried, he and his friends went to heckle George Whitfield, who was a well-known preacher in those days. And at the age of 17, when they went to heckle this guy, Robert Robertson, Robinson, excuse me, heard the gospel. And at this point, thinking about what am I going to do with this long life this old woman has cursed me with, said, maybe I, maybe I need to change a little bit. Seth, did you put his picture up there yet? One more. That's what Robert Robinson looks like. And after hearing George Whitfield, he did change. And three years later, he became a minister. And not just a minister, but a hymn writer. And if you put one more slide up there, you'll see the hymn that uh, Robert Robinson is most well known for. He wrote, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And if you read We'll read through the first verse before we sing it. You see that this verse was really about that experience that he had, this change that came about in his life. He says, Come thou fount of every blessing. Well, of course, he's talking about God there. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. So he's tired of whatever his heart was singing before. He wants to follow God. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. Here's this guy who was out there making fun of preachers, and now God, he recognizes, even, even me, even someone who persecuted people who were doing what God wanted them to do, there's mercy for me. So he wants to praise God for it. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. 
here's a guy who loves God and loves what God has done for him. He's just bubbling over with, with love for God, with compassion, feeling that grace, feeling that mercy, and just really enjoying the place where God's put him. We're going to sing through the first two verses, and then before we get to the third one, we're going to look at, at what he says there. But will you sing with me? Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Raise the mount I'm fixed upon it, Mount of thy redeeming love. This my glad commemoration, That till now I've safely come. And I hope by thy good pleasure, Safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, Wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. All right, before we get to the third verse, we're going to see that it kind of changes. The first two are really about praising God and really about saying, thanks for what you've done, thanks for the way that you've changed me. Yet the third verse is a little different. The third verse shows a little bit of struggle. And it's really asking God, well, let's go through it. It says, oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And if you look through that verse, first it says he's constrained. He talks about a fetter, which is like a leash or a strap. Bind my wandering heart to thee. He says he's prone to wander, prone to leave God. So here's what he wants God to do. Take his heart and seal it. And if we look at Robert Robinson's life, this is kind of what happens. He goes from the guy who, who just found God and was in love with him, and he wanders. And there's different stories about things that happen and and things that went on, but he wanders away from God, from that, that strong faith that he had at the first place. Now, he was still doing good things this whole time. He was still preaching and, and still writing songs, but his heart was wandering. His feet and his hands were in the right place, but his heart was wandering. Let's go ahead and, and sing through that last verse. And then we'll find out just a little bit more about Robert Robinson. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, 
seal it for thy courts above. There's a story that says that right before he died, Robert Robinson was on a stagecoach with a woman. And the woman was holding her newborn baby, and, and she was singing to him and, and humming to him, and she was singing and humming the first verse of this song, because that's all that she knew. So she was singing and humming and, and just, you know, going over the words. She didn't know all the words, just bits and pieces of them. And she looked over at Robert Robinson, who was sharing the stagecoach with her, and, and he was crying. And she said to him, she said, do you know this song? Is, is that why you're crying? Can you, can you help me out with the rest of the words? And Robert Robinson looked up at her and said, Madam, I'm the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds, if I had them, to enjoy the feelings now that I had then. When we go through those first couple verses, it's, it's kind of sad to think, here's this guy who was so on fire, who was so in love, and years later, before he died, it was gone. That love, that fire that he had, he says that he would trade a thousand worlds if he had them, if he could have those feelings back again. Do you ever feel that way? I know that I do. I feel that way about people. I feel that way about places and things that I have to do. And, and sometimes I feel that way about God. And it's a, a tough place to be in, but this morning I want to let you know that there's hope. That just because those feelings aren't there all the time doesn't mean that it's over. Now that's what we're going to talk about today, but let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you you gathered us here in your presence and in your love. Be with us today as we study, as we look at your word and what you teach us and just open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears to hear you. I ask that you use me this morning and not my words, but your words. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've got your Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 2. And here we find the words of Jesus in the form of different letters that he wrote through the Apostle John to churches. And the first one he writes is to the church in Ephesus. And what he does here is he gives them a little bit of a... Well, it kind of reminds me of some speeches that I give to my volleyball team after they do well, but not well enough. Even after they win some games. Because I said, you did really good, but... And they always know that it's coming. I can see it on their faces because I say, we did this well, we did this well, we did this well. And they're just like all holding their breath, waiting for that but to come. And I say, and I give them the but, not because I want to put them down. I always let them know that they did well and that I love them. But I don't want them to settle. I don't want them to say, all right, we did good enough. Because I see their potential, I see how good they can be, and I want them to keep working and not just say, that's good enough. 
Revelation chapter 2. We'll start in verse 2. And here it's Jesus speaking to the members of the church in Ephesus. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Here, Jesus is saying to him, he starts off by saying, you're doing well. You're doing a good job. You know, don't get down on yourselves. You're, you're doing really well. Keep it up. He says, you're, you're working hard. You have intolerance for wickedness. You're not sacrificing your purity. You're testing teachers. You're looking through the scriptures and making sure that the people who are teaching you are doing the right things. You're persevering. You're enduring. And over all of this, you're not getting weary. So he's saying you're doing a good job. And he says that to us a lot of times, too. And I want to say that to all of you this morning. You're, you're doing a good job. There's lots of things that we all do really well. Are they just things that we're doing is the question. Because that's the problem that these people in Ephesus has was they were just doing things. And we've been talking a lot the last couple weeks about the things that we need to do. And the intersections that we come to, how we should react. That we should go out and we should do good things for other people. That we should look for opportunities to serve other people and to spread the gospel that way. But we can't do that and forsake our first love at the same time. And this is what the church at Ephesus did. He says, but you have forsaken your first love. What does this mean to have forsaken your first love? 1 Corinthians 13, that the Apostle Paul wrote, is known as the love chapter. And we always like to just jump in there and say, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, on and on and on and on. But Paul gives an introduction there that we skip over way too often. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, Paul talks about this very subject. He talks about doing things for the wrong reason. Or just doing things maybe because we think they're the right thing, but having the wrong motivation. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Let's have a little math class here. All right. If you have tongues, speaking in tongues, the tongues not just of men, not just getting up here and speaking well, but the tongues of angels, which is a little hyperbole that Paul uses here to say, the best speech you've ever heard. He just says, like we say, I did that, I've done that a million times. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying you could speak better than any man, you could speak better than any angel. But if you don't have love, so if we have tongues, but we take away love, it equals noise. It doesn't matter how well we speak, it doesn't matter what words we say, 
if we're doing it for the wrong reason, it's just noise. And noise isn't something that we normally say, hmm, I could really use some noise now. Noise is something we try to get rid of. It's a negative thing. It's more the jackhammer outside your window than the crickets outside your other window, if we want to think about what noise is. He goes on to say in verse 2, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If we do math again, he says that we can have prophecy, we can have all the knowledge in the world, we can have all the power in the world, we can have faith that moves mountains. And this is a tough one for people to get sometimes because we all wish that we had a faith that could move mountains, right? And Paul says you can have that faith, you can take that faith, you can move all the mountains you want. You can have knowledge, you can have power, but if you take away love, you have nothing. Knowledge plus power minus love equals nothing. Verse 3 says, If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Jesus is talking to a rich young ruler. And the man says, I do everything. I obey all the laws. I do everything I'm supposed to do. What else do I have to do to get into heaven? And Jesus says to him, Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And the guy says, Well, I can't do that. That's a little much for me. And he turns and, and walks away dejected. Later on, after Jesus' time especially, there was a common belief that if you were martyred, if you died defending your faith, or if someone came up to you, especially in, the, in Roman times, and said, are you a Christian? And you said, yes, even though you knew they were going to kill you, that no matter what else happened, if you were martyred, automatically you go to heaven. Paul says, no. Paul says, good deeds, you can do all the good in the world. You can sacrifice everything that you have, even your own life. Good deeds plus sacrifice, but if you don't have love, you gain nothing. Good deeds plus sacrifice minus love equals nothing. You can have the greatest speech in the world. Without love, it's just noise. You can have all the knowledge in the world. You can have all the power in the world. But without love, you're nothing. You can do all the good deeds in the world, sell everything you have. You can solve world hunger. You can solve world poverty. You can give up your life to the flames or to the stones. Or you can be crucified just like Jesus was. But if you don't have love, you gain nothing. None of those things will get you into heaven. None of those things will make you anything more than just a common man. It sounds like a bad place to be. And here's the, the church in Ephesus. And Jesus says to them, you're doing good things. But you've forsaken your first love. 
And luckily, the verse doesn't, the section doesn't stop there. Because we can renew our love. And it's not something that we like to talk about in our society today. We think of love as a feeling. And movies and TV shows and books paint love as a feeling. And we like that feeling of love. We feel all happy and bubbly and giddy and we laugh. And, and eventually, that feeling isn't the same anymore. Scientists say that the honeymoon period for a relationship, where you still get those feelings on a regular basis, on the average, is about four years. And to me, that seemed long, four years. Because I know lots of people who have gone through that period much faster. But after four years, those feelings don't just come around on their own. And at the end of those, when you get towards the end of those four years, they don't come around nearly as often as they do at the beginning of those four years. Did you know that there is a proposal in Europe to make marriage last seven years? That you go and you get married, and a marriage is binding for seven years, and then it ends. And then you can go and get married again. And it's based on this idea that love is a fleeting thing, and there shouldn't you shouldn't get trapped into loving one person for your entire life. So seven years, you know, we'll, we'll go through that four-year honeymoon period, and then three years after that, just to see if they can work things out. But then if it doesn't work out, then they're free to go and go their separate ways. Now, of course, they can renew their license and be married for another seven years and another seven years, but it'll cut down on paperwork, and it'll just make things a lot easier. And there are a lot of people who think this isn't such a bad idea. But that's what happens when we just look at love as those nice, tingly feelings, as that simple emotion. But sometimes when we look at the big picture, it's a lot harder than that. That doesn't mean that those feelings have to go. But it does mean that we're going to have to work a lot harder to get them. And they're not going to come about as easily as they did in the first place. So what does Jesus say to the church at Ephesus here? In verse 5, he gives us three things that he says that they should do. First, he says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Now, my dad is afraid of heights. And he has fallen from heights. And every time that he gets somewhere a little higher, he remembers those times that he fell. In fact, he has a hard time driving it out of his mind. When I lived near Washington, D.C., I took him to a Washington Wizards game. We're both big basketball fans, and Michael Jordan was still playing for the Wizards at the time, so we got to go and see him. Now, we went to see him, but we didn't have the best seats in the world. We were way up in the $11 seats up in the upper deck. And I didn't think anything of it. I used to go to Wizards games all the time and sit up there. And I took my dad, and we went through, and, and we started going up the escalator, and then the other escalator, and then the other escalator. 
And I was standing next to my dad and I saw him get one shade lighter and another shade lighter and another shade lighter. And by the time we walked out of the entrance to where the seats actually were, I think I could see through him. <laughs> but I give him credit, we went down and we sat in the seats and he was looking for a seat belt because we were up so high and they were so steep. And he made it to halftime sitting in the seat. But we, at halftime we got up to go and get something to drink and go to the bathroom and he was like, all right, I'm done. And he stood, I was like, all right, we'll leave. And he said, no, I'll stay out here. And he stayed back in the concourse and watched the game on the TV, which we could have done at home. But he remembers the heights from which he's fallen. And he's never fallen from anything that high, but he remembers. And it's important for us to remember too. If we talk about a marriage like we did before, we do things to remember that first love. We remember anniversaries, anniversaries of the first date, anniversaries of the first kiss, anniversaries of the first fight, the wedding anniversary. We keep wedding albums to go through and, and remember how happy the day was and, and how many people were disappointed and everything that happened. Because we look back and we remember how things were. And it reminds us that you know, things might not be that way now, but we really do love this person. That there's a reason why we're in this situation. And that that love that was there can be back. And we do some of the same things for our relationship with God. Well, we have things in place to do the same thing with our relationship with God. Whether we actually use them for that reason is a different matter. We have holidays, Christmas, Easter, and some people use those as their one occasion to go to church or two occasions to go to church during the year. Some other people use them as times to buy gifts or to buy candy. But are we using them to remember the love that God has for us and the love that we have for God? Each week we take communion, which is a time of remembrance, to remember that love, to remember the way that we felt like Robert Robinson when we went from people who heckled preachers, maybe not with words, but maybe in our hearts or in our minds, to people who recognized God's grace and recognized his love and the forgiveness that's there. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent. This is a scary word for us, repent. Because repent usually means that we've done something wrong. And none of us want to admit that we've done something wrong. But the fact is that most of us have. Uh, wait, no. All of us have. And it's important in the situation of love to remember that it's not us. It's not God who has stopped loving us. That's not the reason why the feelings aren't there. God's loving us all the time, whether you know it or not. But it's, it's us who stopped loving God and stopped looking for God's love for us. And that's a tough thing to do sometimes. Or sometimes it's tough to admit even that that love 
isn't quite what it should be. We want to say everything's fine, everything's good, you know, we're just rolling along. And that's one of our favorite things to do as Americans. So, Don, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing just fine. It's the standard response. Everything's fine. We don't say, well, you know, could be a little better. Or we'll go a step above fine and say, oh, if I was any better, I'd be perfect. Which is true once in a while, but most of the time, we're not fine. Or even when someone says, how are you really? We struggle with saying, you know, I could be better. We have to remember where we came from. We also have to say, you know, there's a problem here. Something's not right. Something's not going the way that it should. How many people here have heard of a church called Willow Creek in Chicago? It's huge. It's one of the biggest churches in America. At one time it was, I'm not sure if it still is. But Willow Creek does all kind of amazing things. They have huge leadership conventions and pastors from all over the world go there to find out how to make their church get bigger and make their church grow and have more people come in and, and do bigger things and better things. And it's an amazing ministry. Two weeks ago, they published a report that said, we're sorry, everything we've taught you for the last 30 years is wrong. He said, we get a lot of people to come to our church, but we don't have a lot of people that are becoming disciples. They're coming to see our wonderful worship displays and our huge Christmas pageant, and they go to small groups and have dinner and talk, but they don't feel like they really know God. And I give them credit for coming out, and, and that's a tough thing to do, to say we're sorry and to say we're going to try to change. But they repented and said, you know, we've got to find that love. And we've got to not just find the love for ourselves, but teach our people how to find that love as well. Which takes us to the end of verse 5. It says, repent and do the things you did at first. Willow Creek says that their biggest mistake was not having big programs, was not getting people in the door. It was, we didn't teach people how to connect with God on their own. We taught people how to come to us and said, we'll help, we'll teach you about God. But really, if you want to know God, you've got a lot to do. Because God wrote this book for you. Not for me to teach it to you, or for someone on TV in the morning to teach it to you, or even for some writer who writes a commentary about it to teach it to you. He wrote it for you. And if you want to get that love between you and God back, you've got to do the things that you do at the beginning of a relationship. When all those feelings are there, that means spending time together. 
We think that we get to a certain point and we know enough about God that we can just say, well, I've got the basics down, I can go from here. If there's anything else, I know how to look it up. And you know, that was great for my engineering education. And that's what they said, learn the basics, and then you need anything else, you can go back and pick up the reference book and, and go from there. But don't waste your time with all the minutia. That's not the way that God works. Because there's no one foundation that's good enough for everything. We've got to keep growing and building, because we've got a long way to go. We've got to spend time together. You've got to talk to each other. It's fun when I see the girls on my volleyball team who are dating some guy from back home, but they're at college, and they get their phone bill. Not so much fun for them, but I remember similar things happening to me and saying, oh, I have an $800 phone bill because I was talking to this boy back home. When you have those feelings, when you're in love like that, you want to talk to each other. And you tell them things that you didn't tell anyone else. You feel safe with them. You feel comfortable with them. And that's what God wants as well. That's the relationship that we need to have with God, to go, with him, go to him and say, this is what's really going on. Not just say, well, this person's sick, and this person's sick, and that person's sick, and please help them, and thank you for the sun coming up today. Those are important things to do, but God knows all that stuff. God wants you to tell him what's going on in your heart. The things that you're struggling with, the things that you're fighting with, the things that that just make you cry inside. Go to him and say, God, this is what really burns me up. And I know you're not just gonna fix it today, but, but you care about me, and you're the only one who I can share this with. There are wildfires going on in, the last one was redo, sorry. Redo, do the things that we did at first. There are wildfires going on right now in California, and uh, I saw a rerun of Larry King Live when I was eating breakfast yesterday, the day before, and Ken Blanchard was on. Ken is the, the author of the book One Minute Manager, and he lives right in the area where those wildfires are going on. It was kind of funny to see his interaction with Larry King because Ken Blanchard wanted to talk about certain things and Larry King wanted him to talk about other things and they were just kind of going back and forth. Um, but Ken wanted to talk about his church and the things that his church is doing and he wanted to talk about how he was facing it and Larry King wanted to say, so are you going to rebuild your house? You know, was it, do you feel safe living there? Ken was like, whatever. But he told his story even though Larry didn't really want him to. And, and the story that he told was this. He said that he got, he wasn't at home, he had to evacuate. And his son, who lives not very far away with his family, they both had to evacuate. And they were, they went to their church, which was in a safer area, and they went there and they prayed. And Ken Blanchard prayed to God. He said, be with all those people and be with my son I mean, he's younger than I am. He's, he's going through a rough time. Help him to, to get through this and to be okay and be with his family. And if it's at all possible, save his house and just be with him and 
Larry King said, well, didn't you pray for yourself? And Ken said, no. <laughs> he said, well, why? Didn't you want your house to be saved? He said, I love my son, Larry. <laughs> I love him more than I love myself. I want his interests to be taken care of first. And that was all that I was worried about, was loving my son and making sure that he was okay. And Larry said, well, you know, what happened? The, the fires are died down, and what happened? Is your house okay? And Ken said, no, my house is, is destroyed. And Larry said, well, how does that make you feel? And he said, well, I feel fine. My son's house somehow is fine. Larry said, well, you're not upset at all? He said, no, my son's house is fine. What do I have to be upset about? His family's okay. And Larry King was just perplexed. He actually just said, well, let's move on to something else. <laughs> he had no idea how to handle this guy who didn't care about himself because he loved his son. And his actions showed that. Do we have that love for God to say, I'm not going to worry about my house. I'm not going to worry about the things that I want the things that would make me happy. What would make God happy? As we go through our life, the life that God has loaned us, we come to intersections, points where we have to make a decision. Do we do what we want to do? Or do we do what God wants us to do? Sometimes that feeling of love follows the action of love. And I've been told that's something that you learn more and more as you get older. And I'm hoping that somehow I can learn it more faster now, because it's a hard, hard thing to understand. But it's a choice that we have to make. Are we going to love God, even though we might not feel like it at the time? Or are we going to love ourselves? We're going to sing our closing song. And as we do, I want you to think this week, what intersections are you going to come to? What choices are you going to have to make? And when you get to those intersections, are you going to choose to love yourself? Or are you going to work to renew that love that you had for God once upon a time? If you're here this morning and you don't know that love for God, then we ask you to come forward.